0: before or due to COVID was the weekly scripture reading uh, done by a reader and so we're going to be starting that back uh, today. If you're able, please stand and find Colossians chapter 2 in the Pew Bible that's on page 984. Colossians 2, beginning with verse 16, "Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then... may be seated.
1: Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to open his word to us today. Father, we thank you that your word is true, that it is faithful, and we thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit who is with us today, who can open our hearts and eyes and our minds to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the word that you have for us today. So be pleased to do that, to transform us, to change us more into the likeness of our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, if you know our family at all, you know that we are a dog family. We have had a number of four-legged friends through the years, and as I was preparing the sermon, I was reminded of one, a yellow Labrador retriever named Brandy. Brandy was a happy-go-lucky, lovable pup that managed to destroy or eat anything she came in contact with. This dog tried my patience and tested my sanctification more than anything and any creature that we've had either before or since. But it was hard to stay angry with Brandy because she was destructive, but she wasn't a mean dog. She had a very docile and wonderful personality. And so it was difficult to maintain any anger for any length of time. You may know that labs were bred to have webbed feet, in order, as you might imagine, to swim and to retrieve items that their masters have shot from the sky. But in Brandy's case, these webbed feet were apparently designed to be shovels rather (laughs) than paddles. She was constantly digging out under the fence, roaming the neighborhood, and making friends everywhere she went. As she grew up, I began to train her a little bit. Uh, She was, after all, a retriever, and so, of course, fetch was one of the first games that she learned. Training was going pretty good, so I figured, you know, let's raise the bar a little bit and take her down the street to a neighbor's house who had a pond in the backyard. So I showed her the item, threw it into the pond, gave her the command to fetch, and like a good dog, she ran and jumped into the water, and subsequently sank like a rock, (laughs) completely disappearing. Well, I panicked and began looking in the pond and calling her name. And just about the time I was going to jump in to try and save her life, she emerged from the water. But not how you might think. She wasn't swimming. She just walked out on the floor of the pond. Yes, I had the only lab in the world who didn't instinctively know how to swim, I mistakenly thought that she would behave in a manner that was in accordance with her nature of being a swimmer and a retriever. This was a bit frustrating, to say the least. Well, she did eventually learn to swim, but was always a bit awkward at it. Well, in our passage today, we see Paul expressing some frustration with the situation in the Colossian church. He had certain expectations that as those who had a new nature, one which was buried with Christ and raised with him in newness of life, that they would behave and operate in a certain way in accordance with that new nature that Christ had given them. But they had gotten sidetracked and were acting according to their old nature, pursuing artificial man-made holiness instead of Christ-centered, authentic holiness. Holiness. No doubt you've heard through the years, certainly from this pulpit, if not in many other settings from teachers and preachers, that when you see a therefore in Scripture, it's important to understand what it's therefore. It's a transition word, and it often is bridging theology with application. Certainly that's the case in much of Paul's writing. And in this case, Paul is looking back at what he has just said that we talked about last week, of our being dead to sin, and being raised with Christ. And now he is giving application to that, and to us. It is to live in holiness, but an authentic holiness, not an artificial holiness. So as Paul looks back in his teaching about being in life in Christ he sees a very clear path forward in terms of living in authentic holiness. Paul needed to confront the error head-on while providing clear teaching to the believers. So we're going to explore this teaching today, and he will continue to unpack it in the weeks ahead in very practical ways for the church. The first point about the artificial holiness being promoted in Colossae, I believe, was related to behavior modification in order to pass judgment on others. Humans are really good at passing judgment on one another, aren't we? There's something self-satisfying about looking down on other people who you believe to be inferior, morally, intellectually, or philosophically. We make ourselves look better, at least in our own minds, when we judge others. Of course, it's easy to see this happening out there in the world. I mean, our society is filled with self-righteous people judging others and their motives in every sphere of life, in politics, in education, in the arts, social media. It's everywhere. But if we're honest, we have to admit it's not just out there. It's in here too, isn't it? We all do this if not out loud, at least in our hearts. And Christians are especially good at it. After all, we have God on our side. We develop pecking orders and lists of spiritual criteria better than anybody else. This is what they were doing in Colossae under this false teaching. They were passing judgment on church members based on what dietary rules and religious holidays they were observing. And if you weren't living up to their artificial standards, then you weren't spiritual enough to be in the elite club of super-Christians. A call to artificial holiness always has, as one of its hallmarks, a call for behavioral modification. Now, this is not to say that there's no benefit to be had for those who are struggling with destructive patterns and habits in modifying behavior, we often will encourage people uh, to get counseling, Christian counseling, even here when they're dealing with these things. But those things can go as far as they can go, and they could be helpful in preventing someone from doing harm to themselves or others. But Paul is dealing here with our relationship with God and our transformation. Internally, in holiness. To begin and stop that process with earthly rules and boundaries is to miss the entire point of our salvation. We weren't saved to become better behaved citizens of the world. We were saved to become like Jesus. As those who have been raised to new life in him, destined for his eternal perfect kingdom. The false teachers were saying that if you want to be holy, then don't do these bad things and instead do these spiritual good things. That was the key to being holy. Churches can certainly tend to have this emphasis in our day as well. When I was growing up, extra biblical lists of do's and don'ts were very prevalent in the Christian circles that I was involved in. Usually they were called standards. Some would judge your spirituality on how legalistic you were about the standards. We're always in danger of going to one extreme or the other, right? Of lawless freedom or of legalistic bondage. And we must be on guard not to add or subtract from the word of God, as the Colossians had done. In his first challenge, Paul is addressing things straight out of Judaism. Ritual dietary laws and religious observances. Well, certainly given Paul's background and his understanding of the fulfillment of Christ in law, he wasn't trashing thousands of years of religious practice, most of which had been instituted by God in the giving of the law. But remember that Paul is addressing those both Jew and Gentile that are now in Christ the one who fulfilled the law. He has spent a considerable amount of time explaining to them that their life in the flesh was buried with Christ in his death and that they now lived in him in his resurrection. He is getting practical with what that means on a day-to-day basis in our lives. Explaining that all the rituals under the old covenant were shadows of things to come. And the real thing, the real deal that those shadows were pointing to, the substance, or literally the body, belongs to Christ. You will often hear preachers and teachers of the Bible when dealing with the Old Testament refer to types and shadows that are found there. And this is what Paul is talking about here. The author of Hebrews goes into depth about the shadows and types of the Old Testament. But in this, the Old Covenant wasn't plan A, and then when that didn't work out for humanity, Jesus was plan B. No, it pointed to the coming Messiah and would be fulfilled in him. The first covenant, from a human perspective, was never going to be kept or fulfilled by fallen mankind. God gave the law as a mirror for us, that we might see our hopelessness in trying to keep it, the futility of being saved by our works. All the while pointing ahead to the real answer and the fulfillment of the law, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who could do it. The rules and regulations of Judaism were the shadows that the approaching light of Christ cast. Now that the real thing is here, Christ Himself, there's no need to hold on to the shadows. And so, keep the keeping of the dietary rules and festival observances no more, were no more than fleeting attempts at holiness through good behavior. And while good behavior is a positive thing under common grace in our society, certainly we want that within a society. It's not a substitute for true holiness. Additionally, in verses 18 through 19, we see that religion not relationship, is the end goal of artificial holiness. And it was this kind of religion that was being promoted to the Colossians that Paul was confronting. The believers there were being told that they needed to pursue a religious experience to find fulfillment. And through these supernatural experiences, the Colossians would be qualified before the Lord. But remember, Paul's already addressed this earlier in chapter 1, in verse 12, where he says, The Father has qualified you to share in the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God had already qualified them in Jesus. There was nothing left for them to do or to add on to be qualified. No amount of religious experience is going to gain holiness for us. This is a pursuit of artificial holiness, it has as its goal religion not relationship specifically the colossian teachers were insisting on asceticism it says and the worship of angels going on in detail about visions that they were having the great christian reformer martin luther began his pursuit of god as a monk Who was deeply devoted to the aesthetic practices of the monastic life? He believed, like so many, that self denial was the path to holiness. He plunged into prayer, fasting, whipping himself, sleeping in the cold without a blanket. Luther was determined to save himself through these actions and through these works. He once said, if anyone would have gained heaven as a monk, I would have been among them. The irony for Luther was that through these means that where he was seeking to love God and to be loved by God, he found neither. In fact, he only became increasingly terrified of the wrath of God. But during his study of the Bible, he began to see how the gospel taught justification by faith, not by works. We are transformed not by the rules and experiences of religion, but by a relationship with Jesus, by grace through faith alone. The worship of angels that's mentioned here is likely referring to entering in in these visions to the worship of angels in heaven as opposed to worshipping them directly. But in any case, they had clearly set up two classes of believers within the church. The super-spiritual ones, who had the inside track through rule-keeping, greater understanding, and supernatural experiences, and then the ordinary believers who were looked down upon, being judged and disqualified. But look at how Paul describes the religious elite and the teachers. He says that they are puffed up without reason, having a sensuous or worldly mind, that they are detached from Jesus, the head of the body. These arrogant, unreasonable religious elites were actually spiritually dead apart from the one true source of life, Jesus Christ. And as a result of being detached from Christ, there was no nourishment, no growth happening. The mark of a true believer is not whether or not one observes the man-made rules or has some kind of supernatural experience, but whether or not one is alive in Christ, in his resurrection power, growing in holiness and obedience. I fear the modern church in our society is in the same danger as the Colossians were, seeking a quick-fix religious experience rather than a sanctifying relationship with the Lord Jesus. We must be on guard against this temptation. So if these pursuits of the false teachers generate an artificial holiness, what does authentic holiness look like? And this is where Paul goes next. Contrasting the artificial holiness, Paul directs them to what authentic holiness looks like in verses 20 through 23 first. He uses the truths that he expounded on in the previous section. First, that they have died with Christ to the flesh and to the elemental spirits of the world. And then, as we'll see in chapter 3, verse 1, that they are now risen with Christ to newness of life. Authentic holiness involves a total and complete personal transformation, not just behavioral change. In addressing dying and being raised with Christ, Paul uses two if-then statements. First in verse 20, if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you continue in these earthly rituals? It's not according to your nature. It doesn't make sense. The second argument in verse 1 of chapter 3 is, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek and set your minds on things that are above. We're going to look at these in order. So Paul is a good teacher, teaches by asking them a logical question. If you have died in Christ to the things of the flesh... And if all of the rules and festivals you observe were shadows of what has come now, then what's the point of doing these things? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. I mean, they may have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, as Martin Luther was doing, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There's no lasting power there. Authentic holiness, unlike artificial holiness, anticipates the eternal, perfect life to come. The realm, which we will see in the next verse, is where Christ already is. As a result, it can't be grasped by means that focus on the perishable things of our current situation. <clears throat> by their very nature, the foods we eat... The festivals and observances that we have are transient. They're no value of our pursuit of holiness. And in the end, these religious practices don't have the power to transform us and are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, Paul says. So now look at chapter 3 in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Paul reminds them again what he has just taught them in the previous verses. They are already risen with Christ. That's their reality. They don't need to work for that status, as the false teachers were telling them to do. They must simply now, in their resurrection life allow Christ, through his Spirit, to work itself out of their lives. And in this, they have attained the fullness of what it means to be human. What irony! The world has all of these promises to us of what it means to be human. All the things in which we would find our identity or our meaning in life. Take your pick, there's a large list of... Commercials prey on this. But God already established what it was to be human at the creation in the garden. Innocence, not guilt. Intimate fellowship with God. The ability to love and be loved perfectly. The capacity for goodness and kindness. To live in pure, objective truth. These are the things that it means to be human in God's plan and perfect world. As he sanctifies us in this life, we reclaim more and more of what it means to be truly human. And when we are complete in him, we will reach our full potential. That is what it means to be holy for humanity to once again reflect the nature and attributes of God as his perfect and supreme creation. The Lord gives us grace in this. He gives us little glimpses into this in our daily lives when we observe how he is working in others and in our own lives. Those times when we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit that we've been talking about here, And in those times, we get a little glimpse of one another's potential holiness. What we will be entirely one day. Sometimes we think that we have to wait until heaven to reclaim the things that were lost in the fall. But that's not true. Christ came that we might live in the abundance of his grace now. Jesus is working out his holiness in you every day, every hour of every day. Our problem is we do not recognize it, and we focus on ourselves, which means we focus on the old sinful man who we've already died to. We must instead focus upon Christ in whom we live. Listen to how the larger catechism describes the process of our being made holy. Our sanctification. It is a work of God's grace, whereby those chosen to be holy are in time, through his spirit, applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them. That's what Paul's been talking about. Renewed in their whole man after the image of god having the seeds of repentance unto life and all other saving graces put into their hearts and those graces so stirred up increased and strengthened as that they more and more we more and more die unto sin and rise unto newness of life this is what's happening in your life if you're a believer this is the work that christ is doing in your life Paul continues with the practical application of the theology he's taught us and says that we must seek the things that are above where Jesus already is. And we must set our minds on those things. If you're tired of living a defeated life, then you have to set about bringing your mind into accord with where your heart is and the reality of who you are in Christ. This is immensely practical. It gets right down to where we are and where we live every day. In Romans 12, you'll remember these familiar verses where Paul describes all of this as a transformation. It's actually the the word there in the Greek is where we get the word metamorphosis from. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of, Of your mind. So, how do we seek the things that are above? How do we set our minds on them? What are they? Well, Paul's going to continue to develop this in the rest of chapter three that we'll be looking at in very practical ways in the next few weeks. But there are many places that we could go in the scriptures that instruct us on how to transform our minds towards the things of God. In Philippians 4, Paul gives us a wonderful list. Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. If you're frustrated with where your mind is today, and I, I really grappled with this this week, by the way. <laughs> it's interesting that I was in a place that really needed, where I really needed to hear this message. If you're frustrated with where your mind is today, if it doesn't seem to be resting in a transformed, Christ-saturated state of being, then examine what it is that you're filling it up with. You remember the old saying, G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out? I mean, this truth is probably one of the more obvious things for us to understand. But somehow, we bypass it when it comes to our sanctification. We must focus our minds on the revealed word of God by faithfully reading and studying his word We've got to seek the good and beautiful gifts that God has given us in the creation. But I'm afraid that more often than not, we're seeking the ugly, sinful, base things of the world and filling our minds with that, more than the things of heaven. We're going to continue to just wallow around in the mental mud and mire of the world until we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And Paul is telling us that it's not rocket science. You don't need a special course. You don't need a set of rules. You don't need supernatural experiences or the deeper life to to obtain the spiritual graces that are available to us. It's not about religious experience. It's about relationship with Jesus. He is more than enough To enable us to live in holiness. So how do we get motivated to do it? What's the end game in all of this? Well, as we've already stated, it's a relationship, not religion. But look at how Paul describes that as he finishes out this section in verses 3 and 4. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Our motivation is that one day Jesus is coming back for us. And while he will return with a body, His glory will no longer be veiled from us. He will shine forth in all his fullness, light, beauty, and perfections for all to see. And Paul says, you also will appear with him in glory. Currently, today, the fullness of your perfect humanity is hidden in Christ who is at the right hand of the Father at the throne of heaven. But one day soon, you will no longer be hidden. Your glory, which is Christ's glory, will shine forth, reflecting his fullness in you. What we are now is in preparation for what we will be then. Our hope is not merely for the coming of the Lord. Our hope is also for the completeness of who we were created to be in him. Listen to how the Apostle John describes it in chapter 3 of his first epistle. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like Him, Because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Why do we seek holiness? Why do we seek things above? Because that's where Jesus is. That's where the lover of your soul is. We follow our affections, don't we? Do you love Jesus? Are you wanting to be near him beside his throne? Then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. So easy to be discouraged, isn't it, in this pursuit of holiness? It often feels like two steps forward and three steps back. But that shouldn't discourage us, because it's not about us, it's not up to us. Jesus has told us that our wholeness in him, our perfection, our completeness, is not a maybe. It is the sure promise of God, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Your sanctification is guaranteed. Can you see it? Can you see it in your Christian family and friends? Can you see it in your brothers and sisters in this room? If not, then stop looking at the things of the earth. Look above to Christ and what he's doing in our lives. He has secured it, and he has declared it to be so. Find your encouragement. In the eternal promises of God, be encouraged in him that he is doing a work in your life and he's not finished with you yet. Every hour of every day, you are progressing in holiness, becoming more and more like Jesus. He sees to it through the power of his spirit. And Jesus is more than enough for us to live in holiness. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that it is immensely practical in teaching us, in shaping us, and in spiritually transforming us. Father, help us to seek not to keep the rules and to perform the religion. Help us to seek, first of all, a relationship with you and to seek you where you are, to keep our minds on the things of God, to desire to live holiness, and as we'll see in the coming weeks, to put to death these things that distract us from that. And thank you, Father, that we have the sure promise of your word, that you are working in us and that you will complete us and that the glory of Christ will be fully and completely revealed in us when you return for us. We thank you for this. In Christ's name, amen.